0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.
1: This is Jen Ramage with KUSP. Today on the program, I'm joined by National Book Award-winning writer Julia Glass, the beloved author of Three Junes. She joins us here today to talk about The Whole World Over, her new novel. It's a rich, layered, commanding story, about the accidents, both grand and small, that determine our choices in love and in marriage. Welcome to the program, Julia Glass.
0: Thank you, Jen. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk
1: about our central character, though from her life we see many other lives. Um, her name is Greeny Duquette, and we meet her sort of innately happy uh, in Greenwich Village, where she's a pastry chef, singing her songs, but wondering if there isn't a bit more to life. What's
0: her story? Well. I, when I created the character of Greenie Duquette, who is in a way the fountainhead of the entire novel, and every piece of fiction I write starts with one single character, so she, she was my starting point. I wanted to create a character unlike any other protagonist I'd written about before, someone who was, as you put it, innately happy. I think most characters I'd written about before were your typically lovable, neurotic New Yorkers who've either been in psychotherapy forever or ought to have been in psychotherapy forever. But she's a woman who has very few doubts and has been on the path toward success in her career and toward her family basically since she was a child. She's always known she wanted to be a cook. She now has a successful Pastry business. She's married the love of her life. She has a four year old child. She lives in the West Village. You know, what more could you want? (laughs) However, and it's always the however that makes the novel, um, something's gone wrong in her marriage, and her husband has become quite emotionally distant. And she assumes he's in some kind of midlife crisis, and being the very decisive, impulsive person she is, she makes a rather drastic move that she believes will shake him up. But what she doesn't know is that he has a guilty secret, and that's the source of his depression. Now, of course, the reader will find out that secret before she will. But the move she makes, which is to accept a job offer halfway across the country (laughs) and go there with her son, expecting her husband to follow her, unleashes all the events of the novel. And in
1: fact, this is um, an incident that is sparked by her gay restaurateur friend, uh, Walter. Yes. Uh, The governor of New Mexico comes into the restaurant, has a piece of her coconut cake, and says, my God, I've got to meet this woman. Uh, He has a real sweet tooth, as many of us do. And in fact, your book is populated by delicious um, explorations (laughs) of those sweet tooths. Many, many cake descriptions in this book.
0: (laughs) I've been criticized for that from many fronts by (laughs) people who are dieting and by critics who are you know, who I guess don't have a sweet tooth. And we won't say what that means about them. But um, <laughs> I, I did joke to my friends that um, I chose to write about a pastry chef so that eating dessert could constitute research. And of course, it did for the four years it took to write this book. But uh, now that the book is published, I'm supposed to stop eating dessert. And I can't. So, <laughs> um, But uh, we were talking about Walter, I guess. And uh, Walter is this very gregarious uh, and somewhat traditional man. He is gay, and he's led a pretty wild life, but he's reached the stage where he really longs to find the perfect soulmate. And he, he's he got love trouble of his own. He's involved in a very foolish affair. He knows it's foolish. He can't seem to break free. And he, too, makes a somewhat... Um, unusual and impetuous decision which is to take in a teenage nephew as an apprentice uh, to work with him in the restaurant and to share his apartment and he has fantasies of being this wonderful surrogate father but of course he's never really been a father and um, you know all hell breaks loose there as well. And in fact he does this only to displease his brother uh, Werner out
1: in California and prove that he is the better of the two the more hip uber cool uh, uncle
0: right and and two, I think you know that's true to a certain extent. you know, he's always felt inferior to this brother who's this very successful, as my partner would put it, he's on the money tree and he lives in Marin county, and they have a very friendly relationship, but Walter has never felt really recognized by his brother, so yes, you're right, there's some way in which he can kind of stick it to his brother by doing a better job of of fathering the son but he also he's cast he's very lonely. And I think he's casting about I mean, I'm the author, so I know he's casting about for a way to distract himself from the heartbreak he's experienced in this affair. And, um, and try to find a loving purpose in his life. I mean, he like Greeny, he's very successful at what he does. And he feeds people, he entertains people, he's very popular, well loved himself. But, um, you know, the, at the core of this novel for me is the search for true love. Now, I mean that in a much larger sense than the search for romantic love. I mean the search that we all go through in very different ways with different sexual preferences and um, different lifestyles. Um, the search that we go through to find a groove, a place where um, we make the family we want, the lasting circle of love, whether it's friends, whether it's children, um, siblings, uh, grown siblings. I mean, I touched on this very much in 3 Junes. Uh, You know, family to me is the core of everything. I mean, I even am a fundamental believer that most of the great strife in the world at large you can trace back to family strife of one kind or another and uh, so I'm always deeply involved in families I love to look at the changing relationships of siblings as they grow older and and how their relationships change constantly and that was very much at the center of three Junes but here I really wanted to look more at the way that we partner and the way that we parent
1: The role of um, having a child is a a difficult one for any couple. And you prove that in many ways in this book. Um, The gay couple who Alan is counseling, uh, uh, who Walter has an affair with one partner during this hard decision making process. One partner, Stefan, wants to have a child and he wants to adopt at any cost. And he feels it in his gut. And his other partner, Gordy, for a mixture of reasons, is more hesitant. And that discussion and that decision can break apart any good relationship as much as it can bind us together as it does with Greenie and Allen.
0: Right, right. And, and and I should say, I don't know if we said that Alan, who is Greeny's husband, is a psychotherapist who has, you know, who specializes in couples counseling. So this gay couple comes to him, and, and it's a challenge for him. I mean, he's never he calls this baby crossroads. Um, and, you know, personally, I know lots of people, myself included, who've <laughs> come to that point in the relationship where it's like, okay, buster, you know, <laughs> and I want to have a baby. And, you know, I mean, I won that battle, fortunately. I have a wonderful partner, and we have two kids, so we've been through that. But Alan nicknames this dilemma baby crossroads. But as he says, it's the first time he's done it with two men. And these men have been together for 13 years. And, you know... Inside this one is the deep desire to be a parent, and the other loves their life the way that it is. And it's a very glamorous, affluent West Village life. Um, So, there too, you know, although that's a fairly small subplot of the book, um, you know, unbeknownst to the one who wants to become a father, the other one is having this affair with Walter. Uh, But, you know, that's the different kinds of families that people form. Is something too that I, that not even for political reasons, but just for reasons of the heart, I love to, to explore in my work. There's also, you know, the question of single mothers adopting in this book. It, there is a lot about parenting and wanting to parent, um, but I wouldn't call it a book about baby lust. So, um, no,
1: it's a book about how do you expand your family and how do you choose your family? Right.
0: And, or does your family, in fact, choose you in so right. many ways? And, and how do you go, you know how do you go from the family you were born into, taking everything that you were given there and transmute that or reject it or you know embrace it to go forward and make your own family? And of course, all these characters have a lot of backstory. And people who've read three Junes remember just how much um, history all of those characters have. And I when I was, About halfway through writing this book, I realized that of the four major characters, and we haven't discussed the character saga yet, but um, of three of these four characters are essentially orphans. I mean, they're grown people. They've lost both parents. And Alan has lost one of his parents. And I saw this when I made a chart of the characters to give a little talk. And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, and I, I think that in some ways, I'm also grappling inside myself with the approaching point in my own life when i lose my parents i mean i'm happy to say my parents are still alive and well but you know i'm reaching the age i mean i'm 50 so i'm actually quite lucky i'm an oldest um but i've seeing a lot of my friends and how their lives change when they lose their parents Well, it's interesting you say that Maureen Corrigan, who's a book
1: reviewer for Fresh Air, uh, had a book out about why she loves to read. And uh, a part that stuck with me, especially in reading your book, The Whole World Over, was the sense that as a reader, when we open the pages of great fiction, we are going on a search for authenticity. And we are using that novel as a touchstone for our lives, for our inner life, for our outer life, for our moral life as well. Absolutely. And it seems to me what's interesting when you won the National Book Award, quite a surprise into 2002 to everyone who didn't maybe read Three Junes. Well, it was quite a surprise to me. still is. (laughs) But Bob has said this great thing, I think. He said that Three Junes is this anti-hip book, that it's an anti-cool book, um, that it was like choosing a 25-year-old single malt whiskey as the prize winner. And I think by that he means uh, the way that we now view fiction is that your books, both Three Junes and the whole world over, are just about the simple life decisions we make and how we go about in the world and how we make family and how we deal with the loss of our parents, how we just deal with life day by day. Right. And they can comprise 550-page page books where it seems that not a lot happens, and yet the emotional life of each character is so deftly explored that we are forever changed by it and, in fact, called to recognize what's changing for us in those pages.
0: Yes, that's true. I mean, I, I think I just recently said, I've I've been talking a lot about the reading of fiction because people ask me, do I think that, you know, the novel is dead? Do I think that there isn't good fiction being written? I think there's a ton of good fiction being written in, in, with more, with a broader breadth of, of style, of orientation, than there has been in a long time. What's endangered is the reading of fiction. And it worries me a lot. And I think that there's something, That fiction gives you that you can't even get from from the best memoirs, which, I mean, memoirs are very much in fashion, as we know, Um, controversial though they may be. (laughs) And I said to someone, you know, when you're reading a novel, it's as if you're sitting on a plane next to a stranger, and you say hello to that stranger. And from just your saying hello, the stranger guesses exactly what town you grew up in. And you begin to have a conversation, and suddenly you realize that this total stranger knows all these things about you just through the connections of your hearts. But you are strangers. And when you pick up a novel, you're reading the daydreams of a total stranger, of that novelist. And what happens is you think you're spying on these lives. I mean, there can be something wonderfully voyeuristic. And yet, suddenly you're seeing yourself. And it is such a surprise. It is so unexpected. It's very different from reading a memoir of someone and saying, well, gosh, I've been through substance abuse, or gosh, you know, I've been through, you know, a divorce. And you choose to read it because you you usually know what it is you want to connect with in that memoir. And, I'm, and I don't mean to badmouth memoirs. There are some wonderful ones out there. But a novel is an act of, you know, sort of blind faith that you feel you're going to be drawn into this world, and you know that somewhere you're going to be slapped almost with this riveting connection that you did not expect. And it's much more moving, I find, when it comes out of left field that way.
1: Well, you've said that fiction gives life its moral shape. But what's interesting is this idea that this blind faith is something that drives our main character, Greenie Duquette. She takes this amazing leap across the country to a land she doesn't know um, in the hopes that something in her life will change, that something more profound and authentic will become of that. And in fact, a lot of your characters take this similar leap of faith and surrender themselves to the, to the plot, to the story, to the day-by-day struggle. It's an interesting concept and... Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the ways that we watch this struggle through these characters' lives throughout that book.
0: Right. Well, um...
1: You look at, for example, you look at Walter also taking on Scott, this teenage boy who he feels is probably pretty interesting. He's a poet from Berkeley. That's the context we get for his visit. Well,
0: it's also, you know, Walter, as we know in this book, has just started dyeing his hair. So, you know, you can also guess that he wants (laughs) some of that luster of that, you know, boyish cool to rub off on him when his, you know, Scott arrives with this big, shiny black guitar. You know, (laughs) here's this gay man (laughs) hoping to settle down, but part of him, you know, wants to be this... Young hottie again. So I mean, I think we all go through that. Where don't you? I mean, I whenever I now like meet a teenager, and I have young kids; they're ten and five. So I don't really have any teenagers in my life. But if, for instance, we have a babysitter who's a teenager, and I feel like if I can make some connection or if I can get them to actually pay attention to me, it's like, wow, you know, maybe I'm still young and vibrant. But um, it's like but, being on the playground again. <laughs> right. Right. So, but but anyway, we we were talking about the characters. Choices and, you know, sometimes I have characters who can't make those leaps, and I think Alan is someone who's paralyzed. It's tricky to write about those characters because you can't frustrate the reader too much. And when I made the decision to have Greeny go out to New Mexico with her son, leaving Alan, and I knew that part of the novel would be Alan's point of view I thought oh my goodness I'm leaving this very depressed man all alone how am I going to uh, you know keep his part of the novel lively and that's when I introduced the character of Saga and that um, is uh, Alan is waiting to buy stamps at a stamp mobile on 6th Avenue in, in Greenwich Village and this, he sees this woman with a box of puppies, you know, looking like she's waiting for someone. Well, he helps her with this box of puppies and he becomes fascinated by her because she seems rather ragtag, almost homeless, but she's quite with it mentally. And we then begin to see her point of view. And Saga is a woman in her early 30s whose life has been derailed by an accident, by a head trauma that has left her with some serious memory deficits although she lives you know she lives fairly well but she she's not confident enough to live by herself and she shares this big rambling house by the ocean in Connecticut with this older uncle who's a professor at Yale but she kind of sneaks into New York City where she works with a kind of countercultural animal rescue group so she forms this tenuous connection with Alan and and I had introduced this relationship as, you know, it's the writer's desperate act to try to get some more human contact in there so I'm not just stuck inside this man's head. Although I love writing Alan's... Alan is a character full of doubts and he's a real agonizer. And to tell you the truth, at heart, I'm really an agonizer too, so I had a lot in common with him. But she became, as happens for me often, a much more fully formed character. And her way of seeing the world... Not exactly passively, but constantly testing reality around her. Because when you, I mean, I imagine that when you lose significant parts of your, not just your memory, but your ability to remember, you're constantly trying to figure out what experiences of yours are accurate for everyone. Or, you know, if you, if if you experience something strange, well, is it strange for everyone or is it just strange for you because you've lost some important component of the connection to reality? And and what's been interesting is that as this book has been out in the world, a lot of people are very intrigued by this character in particular.
1: Well, she's a bit of a mystery to herself and to the yes. reader. Um, she also sees, because she grapples with language and she's lost a lot of her vocabulary and her memory from this accident, Um, this hit to the head. She sees language and words in color as if to remember them. There were a couple that struck me, though they always seemed to stand out on the page in the whole world over. One was Patriarch, which she saw as brown, a kind of temple of a world a word, a shiny red-brown, like the surface of a chestnut. She saw it in that color, and then another contingent, which was a mustard color for her, uh, rigged with bark, rough to the touch. So she's using all of her senses possible to remember the context and the meaning of a word.
0: Right, well, you know, I actually, I have to tell you something. I, I'm i a little lazy when it comes to research, and I, but I also do research last. I think it's important to write as if you know what you're writing about, then you go back and you fix it and i never really did have that in-depth conversation with a neurologist about the pathology of her of her memory loss and i you know i love words and so I, th- I it was kind of self-indulgent that i had her become this person for whom individual words are these experiences she can't control where she sees them as in, with color and texture and then and i and and, and i thought to myself okay, even if it's not accurate, it's really metaphorical because I don't need to be completely accurate here. But the remarkable thing is that I discover now that there is a condition in which people cross sensory wires in their brain. And it's not really known why. And it's called synesthesia. And one of the most common ways in which it manifests itself is seeing words in color. For some people, actually, words call forth snippets of music I mean it just it means that different sensory receptors in your brain merge as it were um, but that was amazing for me that I had actually made something up that turns out to be real. <laughs> Fiction gives us truths. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean,
1: you wrote Three Junes and rather finished it and published it when you were 40, and before that had done a lot of editing for um, interesting publications and sort of slapdash articles on pets and and parenting and a mixture of things. But your major at Yale, and in fact, one of the other hats you wore was a painter. And I thought how interesting. Julia Glass is both interested in words and in color, and, and I loved the way that Saga was, too, even before we knew this was a condition
0: right it's true I mean that's I always say the one thing I miss the most about being a painter is working so viscerally with color you know I love you know having those colors all over my hands and my clothes and and uh and there's a there's a dry quality to writing you can't get around it's it's a it's a much more monastic form of work but I I do enjoy creating recreating settings like the the big house that Saga lives in was a wonderful place for me to to create for the reader. Um, and, you know, as Veno McLeod's bookstore in Three Junes was, which, of course, we see again here. I think I could not, could not stay away. <laughs> and, I, you know, I did not expect to have any of the characters from Three Junes recur in, in this book come back. And when I saw myself bringing Veno McLeod back, I thought I was very suspicious of my motives. You know, I thought, well, I'm clinging to my old book, but it turned out to be a wonderful you know serendipitous choice that i made and of course you for those who love Fenno macleod you don't ever get to see the world through his point of view in this book but but in a very quiet peripheral way he has he has an, an influence on the fate of some of the characters in this book
1: he certainly does you wonder sometimes as a writer how difficult it is to give up these characters who you've sort of lived with in your head and in your home for years you said that the whole world over took you 4 years to write i imagine you miss a lot of these characters
0: you know, people ask me about that, and I hope I don't come across as too ruthless, but when, in, in both cases, when I've finished these novels, as much as I love the characters, I like to say that it's probably like sending kids off to college, I mean, well-adjusted kids, in the sense that I always feel that I have sent my characters in, a, in the direction that's right for them. Um, that is, if I haven't killed them off, I suppose. Um, And they're headed for their proper destinies. And maybe they'll phone me once in a while and let me know how it's going. But I, I don't, I, I'm fascinated by writers who return again and again and again to the same group of characters. Because, you know, with, again, with the exception of Fennel McLeod, that, that has not been my habit. And already I'm forming a new cast of characters in my head for the next novel and, I could swear up and down now that none of these characters will come back, but who knows? You know, there's already a lobby out there for Saga to return. So who knows, you know, Saga could end up returning in this next novel, but i'm already I'm already in the next world. And I love the world of this novel. I love the world of three Junes. I can revisit them very easily. But I've let them go.
1: And they're separate worlds. Well, it's like when you, like you were saying, um, having a kid go off to college, it's the same way in which uh, your characters in this book have to learn to let go of certain things, have to hold on to memories, but let go of the past and embrace the future.
0: Right, right. And I I always, you know, there's, there is a lot of sadness in my books. There's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of having to get over heartbreak that seems um, inconsolable, um, death, uh, but... I I think that I will always write fiction that ends hopefully, um, that sends even people who've been broken at some level forward into a future that that can hold joy and love for them. I mean, I'm a romantic in that way.
1: Yeah, a Bronte in some regard. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, talking about this idea of struggle and that you have to move through the pain and this grief towards hope as so many of your characters do in this book and certainly in three Junes as well I wonder if we can hear a passage of um, when Greenie loses uh, the people she's closest to in the world this is a passage um, where uh, her parents who have this wonderful Scrabble um, repartee and the winner of each Scrabble year gets to pick the vacation go off to Scotland and tragically die in a car accident and Greenie is faced um after the birth of her son who's two years old and her marriage in love with Alan of going to that home alone and facing that their absence
0: right she so Greenie decides to go alone to her parents' house the house she grew up in um, which they've left you know when they went off to their vacation and she goes into the house and she goes into the kitchen as she always did that was her mother was a wonderful cook you know she gets her love of cooking from her mother. And she goes to the refrigerator believing that you know, she's just going to get herself a glass of water. And first she examines the magnets on the refrigerator and all the little notes that her mother, who was a highly organized woman, had left for herself. And then she opens the, the refrigerator. And um, I, I guess I'll start right here. Greeny found herself mesmerized and briefly, falsely reassured by the bric-a-brac of her parents' lives as of the moment they had left this house and, knowing her mother, as of the moment they were to have returned. It felt as if the entire house were poised for that moment, still unaware of the terrible news. Reflexively, Greeny opened the right-hand door and found that, efficient as ever, her mother had nearly emptied this part of her refrigerator. There were a dozen well-preserved condiments in jars, but no eggs, milk, or juice to spoil, certainly no leftovers sprouting gray fuzz. But then she opened the left side, the freezer, and this was when she found her true sorrow. Predictably, the freezer was full, stocked with carefully labeled foil packets, chicken breasts, turkey sausages, homemade raspberry muffins, chestnut puree. Containers of chicken and shellfish stock. A dozen red velvet cupcakes unfrosted, probably awaiting a visit from small George. There was even a large plastic tub filled with blueberries picked in Maine the previous summer, destined for pies and preserves, and a special pancake sauce that George had just learned to adore the way Greenie always had. Looking into the smoky hum of the freezer, Greenie saw in its generous cargo all the mothering that had belonged every moment of her life till then, to her and her alone, along with the grandmothering that would henceforth become the sole domain of Allan's well-meaning but mostly hapless mother. She stood there a long time, clinging to the freezer door and sobbing, letting the cloudy chill bleed out into the room, flow heedlessly around her body, She heard the inner workings of the refrigerator grind in protest. But still, she felt incapable of closing the door, as if that act would be too unbearably final.
1: After she closes the door, she calls out to Alan and asks him to come. And in that act, like so many acts, you end the book with 9-11 and the falling of the towers. And our characters, while we won't divulge who lives, who dies are forced to reconcile this notion that we must live every day as if it's our last, and we must move forward and embrace our families. Julia Glass, author of The Whole World Over, thank you so much for joining
0: us here today. Thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.